and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the creative people of Austin, Texas. My intention is to have conversations that are meaningful, inspiring, and in-depth, with the goal of making a connection first with the person I'm interviewing, hopefully adding value to their life and career, and then sharing that content with the local community and potentially anyone in the world. Please share any feedback you have and leave me a rating and review on iTunes. That could help others find the podcast and inspire them to take a chance and give it a try. And if you're listening to this through an app on your phone, be sure to visit austinarttalk.com on your computer to get the full effect of each episode's webpage and to follow the links provided that are relevant to the guests and what we talk about. For the last 35 years, Jason Phelps has been studying and practicing a diversity of performing arts, including acting, dance, music, and voiceover work. In addition to being dedicated to and invested in education, tutoring, mentorship, voice training, and directing. He's also passionate about exploring the different facets of the father and son relationship, social justice, what it means to engage in acts of compassion, and how can we be our best creative selves. I've known Jason and his wife Marjorie for many years and have seen him perform multiple times and have always been impressed by his confidence and creativity, as well as his sincerity and the honesty in his acting. He is really a joy to be around and the conversation was thoughtful and inspiring. Here is Jason. Okay, Jason, thanks for being on my podcast. Absolutely. So, for those that might not know who you are, tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. So, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. And I started doing theater when I was in ninth grade. Hmm. My first play was a musical, Once okay. Once Upon a Mattress. <laughs> okay. Um, it happened... So, at the time, I was 15 years old. Yeah. And... My parents were getting a divorce then, oh, wow. and so things were pretty crazy at home. Mm-hmm. I mean, not in, yeah, without going too much into the yeah, right. <laughs> divorce of my parents, Yeah, it was just an unsettling time. Sure. So I started doing theater in ninth grade, and I found this new family. Oh, yeah. And it became awesome and i was able to really express myself and explore different aspects of myself that i didn't really know that i had or was particularly interested in yeah i started doing theater in ninth grade and then i did theater every year since that i'm wondering before that did you have any inclinations at all towards anything not really i mean i did or encouragement towards creativity or no, Being so here's here's something that's really interesting that I have been exploring for most of my life. Oh. Is that no one in my family is an artist. Oh, yeah. Like I've been looking, you know, far yeah. back on both sides, my father or my mother's side, and there's there there's no musicians, there's no writers, definitely not any theater or actor people. Yeah. There really has not been anyone who has searched out a a creative life for themselves. Wow. I'm the only one in my family who ever went to college and completed college. And I, I, you know, I actually have a master's degree in education and a BFA in theater. So, and I'm one of the only people who moved away from the home Mm. base. 
So that's been pretty interesting to me. Like I've been looking at that for a big chunk of my life, but I do look at when I was 15, I started doing theater and I've literally been doing theater ever since then. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be 50 this year. So yeah, for the past 35 years, I've been doing theater. <laughs> was it random that you ended up getting into that play or that class or? It was kind of a social thing at the okay. time. It sounded fun. Um, you needed an escape. I needed something to do. Friends of mine were doing it too. Yeah. And then it just became like very satisfying and I was getting something back. You know, I was feeling that sort of buzz that you get when you perform live. Yeah. Um, Adrenaline rush. Yeah. And, and so I kept doing it all through high school. Usually would do two shows a year, like a drama and a musical. Did Guys and Dolls, did Grease. Oh, man, I'm did, so jealous. <laughs> yeah, did some Shakespeare, uh, did an Agatha Christie play. And then when it came to be senior year, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to go to college mm. for. The drama teacher suggested that I audition for this uh, National Endowment for the Arts scholarship which I did, and I, I did not get the scholarship, but just that process of auditioning for that put this bug in my, you know, my thinking like, wow, I could actually go to college for this yeah, and pursue this. So I did. And then I, I started auditioning at different schools. Um, some of them were in Ohio, some of them. And then for some reason, I really wanted to go to the East Coast. Yeah, Like I'd never been there. Boston looked attractive to me for some reason. So I auditioned to two schools in Boston, uh, Emerson and Boston University. Turns out I got into Boston University and I had the best experience there as far as auditioning goes. So that's where I ended up going. Yeah. I want to um, back up a little bit. Yeah. Did you have a lot of resistance from your family? I mean, did, did they think you were crazy or they were trying to talk you into not moving? No, they weren't. It's interesting. Now that you mentioned that, I, I that never came up. Wow. Okay. Which is kind of surprising yeah. given that both of my parents are very working class. Both of them stayed at the same kind of job most of their adult life. Yeah. They knew it was something that I that I liked doing. Yeah. They came to see me perform in high school. They haven't seen me perform since then. Oh, okay. Only a few times. Yeah. So, yeah, I didn't get any resistance. I, I think there but did were... did you get support? I got support, yeah. Okay. They, they were, you know, we've filled out... I mean, money was a big issue. Okay. I got some scholarship... I got work study, but that became, that was sort of the focus. Like, okay, how are you going to do this? Practical. Fine. Yeah. Totally. That's my parents. They're very <laughs> practical. So yeah, that, that was the main issue as far as like studying theater or going to art, you know, theater art school. I don't know what they made of it really. Yeah. And when you're like, you know, you got your car packed and you're ready to head to Boston. Are you thinking about like, wow, I'm the first person to do this kind of thing. I mean, did it occur to you at that time? Well, was, we, uh, my mom drove me, right? And it was uh, my, my mom, my brother, my grandmother went with us. Oh, we wow. all drove up. We made a vacation out of it. We went to Maine for a while, for like a week before we went to Boston. And 
so yeah it was a big deal yeah it was a it was a pretty big deal and i i remember you know as soon as like my my mom when they all drove away afterwards i was like wow okay here we go <laughs> i'm totally on my own and how was boston boston was amazing yeah, not having been in a big city like that. I mean, Cincinnati is a big city. Boston is different as a, you know, there are much more, there are cultures from all over the place. Yeah. The theater school is pretty insular. So you kind of immediately have a community of people right away yeah. that you take all your classes with. So that was interesting. You're living in a dorm. That part I, I really loved and met great friends, you know, have still have some of them today. But the other thing that it did is it exposed me to all of this art that I had never seen before. Mm -hmm. Theater, dance, music, visual art, street art, you know, just anything in the Boston, Cambridge area. Went to New York a few times. I mean, that was a, one of the biggest influences on my whole performing career is like mm. the kind of work that I saw in Boston while I was in college has really shaped the kind of work that I do today. Mm. I mean, everything from the punk rock shows to the crazy dance pieces to seeing Robert Wilson and, you know, companies from Japan and G Germany. And yeah, it was, it was pretty eye opening. Sounds exhilarating yeah. and inspiring. It was at that age. It was pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have any really important mentors during that time? That's another topic that I've been exploring my whole life, really. <laughs> like, when I was in college, there were certain... I mean, I, I liked my professors. I wouldn't say that I felt particularly bonded to any of them in a way that I thought, oh, I want that kind of career. Yeah. Or I like the work that they're doing and how how can i follow in their footsteps or and and i feel like none of them really took me under their wing either like okay. it was somewhat of a i don't know detached or just teacher student kind of relationship that just was like you're coming take my classes i'll see you perform i'll give you some feedback and that's pretty much as far as it went mm -hmm. so having a mentor and sort of searching for a mentor has been something i've been questioning mm. a lot of my artistic life. There are tons of people who I like, you know, who I admire their work and but it's been a question for me. And I've I've taken it on really and flipped it in a way where I feel like it's really important to mentor people. Yeah, you're a huge mentor. I mean, I'm teaching this class at the city. Um I've had several high school students that I've mentored and so that part is me very meaningful to me, and it's been interesting to not you know to try to look at that other side, mm -hmm. like what have I received, and most of it I've received, I think from experience and kind of tried to make it my own, but yeah, that mentor mentee question mm -hmm. is something i've it's pretty big for me so you were in Boston for four years at school, yeah. I was in Boston for four years. I was in a sort of a traditional acting program. And then I left that program and did something called theater studies where you can create your original work. So mm. my senior year, 
a group of us essentially created our own ensemble and just made original work that year. Oh, wonderful. And that was great. And then after that, I moved to Chicago and worked on a very bad production of Night of the Iguana (laughs) that ran way too long. I don't know if you know the play or not, but I played Uh, Hank, the bus driver. (laughs) It's a long play. It's over three hours. Okay. And Hank is at the beginning of the play and the end of the play. And so that was kind of my first introduction to theater in Chicago. It was pretty crazy. It was, yeah. yeah. So Why I, Chicago? A few things. So this was, this was 1990. I just graduated college in 1990. I didn't, I didn't want to stay in Boston. Didn't want to go to New York. Chicago was interesting to me because I knew there was a theater scene there. It was a little bit closer to Cincinnati for whatever reason. I thought, yeah, yeah. maybe I'll go closer to home. It was more affordable, and there was a great music scene happening Mm. in Chicago at the time of bands that I was particularly interested in, this kind of post-punk sound that I loved. So, And one of my friends from high school was living there, too. So moved there, did some bad theater, got into a rock (laughs) band, (laughs) was the singer in a band called Table. Okay which was the, this kind of math, art, rock band. So you were doing music too. Yeah. Okay. I, was, I was singing in this band and I had done this crazy one-man version of Petrushka by Stravinsky with this funny group called the Society for New Things. There was like <laughs> this experimental company in Chicago and it was, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a crazy time. But it was also a, like an intense emotional time because mm. I was just, I just graduated from college, didn't really know what I wanted to do, trying to kind of find my way in this arts world and make yeah. a living and really be on my own, you know? Yeah. Like really on your own. Like now. really on my you own. just left your group of people that you got to know for four years. Yep. In this big city, not attached to any school. And so... I got pretty depressed while I was in Chicago and I was, I was trying to figure out if I wanted to stay there or not. Or then I started exploring the idea of going to grad school. And while I was there, my friend Vicky Boone, who I went to college with in Boston, invited myself and another guy who I moved to Chicago with. Well, no, he, I didn't move to Chicago with him. He just landed in Chicago and we also went to college together. Mm-hmm. Vicky was here in Austin and wanted to start a theater company. And she asked us if we wanted to come and do this do this show. Um, it was called Life During Wartime. And I had no strings, you yeah. know? And Chicago wasn't really doing it for me. And I was 22. So I was like, yeah, I'll go to, I'll go to Austin. Yeah. So that was 91. So was there not as much going on in Chicago as there was like when you first got to Boston, all this inspirational work and all that kind of thing? There was a lot of work going on in Chicago for sure there's not nearly I mean there's a theater the theater scene in Chicago now is much bigger and there was definitely theater going on then but I didn't know how to get into it yeah like I I didn't have the guts to meet people like I was just sort of doing it a little bit at a time 
Yeah, kind of feeling depressed. Yeah, feeling sad and like in this rock band and doing bad theater. And it just was time (laughs) for a change. It was like, I'm ready to get out of here. And Chicago, like intense winter. Oh, yeah. That's rough. (laughs) So Austin sounds pretty good. Right. Yeah. So at the time, Slacker had just come out. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I was listening to the Butthole Surfers a lot and Scratch Acid, which are two big bands from Austin. Yeah. So I was like, wow, Austin sounds awesome. And and I knew it was really cheap here. Yeah. So my friend Bill and I packed up this little Honda Civic station wagon and drove down here and met up with my friend Vicky. And she found us this really crazy duplex in Hyde Park that we lived in and it was it was awesome it was great like stayed started doing theater and it took me a while of adjustment i wasn't really sure if i was going to stay here what the theater company was going to do but then i met marjorie yeah so i met marjorie in 92 she had recently moved here from new york and she was doing some pretty awesome dance theater work mm. that i was I was used to seeing from New York and from Boston and even in Chicago a little bit, but I wasn't sure if it really existed here. Yeah. So I saw her perform and I was very interested in her work. So started doing some workshops with her and then she started to choreograph work for the theater company. And this relationship just started to build both artistic and romantic. Mm-hmm. So as we're doing new plays uh, with Vicky Boone, and that's when Frontera started, and we started oh, yeah. Frontera Fest um, in 93. At Hyde Park Theater. At Hyde Park Theater. Things just took off. Mm-hmm. Like the 90s were, I mean, I'm busy now, but then it was different. I was in my 20s. Things were easier, yeah. You know, but nonstop plays, dance pieces. Um, so was dance a part of your performance repertoire all along, or was it? Did it kind of start out more with acting, or was there movement? And yeah, it definitely started out with acting, and then I started to take some dance movement classes in college, and I was really into them. And then that senior year when our oh, yeah. when we created a company, all of our work was very movement based. Okay. So and I started to see dance companies who would come into Boston from around the world and I just loved their work. Yeah. That was a huge influence for me. And then when I moved to Austin and then met Marjorie and there was a an organization here called Dance Umbrella for a long time that a woman named Phyllis Slattery ran. And she was from the East Coast, and she brought in a lot of dance companies to Austin, and then they would stay and do workshops. Oh, wow. And they were amazing. Joe Good was here, uh, 33 Feigning Spells. And then I met Deborah Hay. And Deborah, at the time, through the late 80s into the 90s, was, was doing these large group workshops there were performance workshops that happened every day, three hours, four hours a day for four months. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is intense. They were amazing. And Marjorie did one one year, and I saw that performance. And then I did one in 94, 93 or 94. 
that was the same year that John Cage died and Deborah knew John Cage. And so the whole piece, the, our whole meditation for that time was about John Cage's work and kind of exploring silence and exploring the space in between things. And that totally changed my whole world. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it changed everything about performing for me. How I look at performance, how I am as a performer. Yeah. It it sort of changed the way I see things. Yeah, I was going to say, can you articulate that yeah. a little more? I mean, Deborah, she offers these meditations that are rooted in the physicality. You know, how can you perceive yourself moving or performing if every cell in your body is activated? And how can you move in space, you know, having a sense of the space that your body is in? How can you move and have it be like truly impulsive? Like you're not thinking about your movement. You're just letting the movement happen and that it's okay. Like, so judgment is, there's no judgment. Because all movement is great. All movement is beautiful. All movement is sort of pure. And once you can tap into that, you can perform Mm. anywhere. Mm. You know, people get nervous performing. I, I mean, I certainly get nervous too. But if you can kind of drop into this idea that, you know, we're all human beings. We all have these cells. We all have muscles, skeletal system. Like we're all moving all the time. Why is it so different that we're just moving in front of people and people are watching, you know, it's, it's, it's really about observing how people move in space and really taking it in as something that's unique and beautiful. Yeah. And the other idea that I always think about is that when I'm performing, I kind of imagine that I'm not just performing in one way, like one dimension that it's completely multi-dimensional hmm. so that people who are in back of me or on the side of me or that that's part of the performance also. Hmm. It's not just looking at my face and the front of my body, that it's multi-dimensional. And I, I have to say like that after that workshop, every performance that happened after that was different. Hmm. Whether it's a play, whether it's singing a song, whether it's, standing in front of a class teaching. Yeah, had a profound effect on me. So after that experience, continued doing work with the theater company, yeah, all through the 90s, and did some great plays. Just totally changed Hyde Park Theater many times. Took seats out, had audiences come in through the back door. Like, I mean, we did all kinds of stuff to that space. And continued to make dance work with Marjorie, big installation kind of pieces. And did you get married at some point? And then we that? got well, we didn't ever get married, married. Okay. Until much later, but we had a kid in 1999, and that changed everything. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Javon was born in '99, and he he brought an incredible, you know, series of gifts to us 
And some challenges too. He's had some health challenges and that changed our lives. Like Marjorie and I definitely chose different paths after that. I realized that I couldn't do theater the way I was doing it anymore because I wasn't really making enough money. Yeah. The whole time I was waiting tables, you know, all through the 90s. Yeah, I was like, going to ask you what you yeah, were doing for, for your regular money. job. <laughs> I waited tables the whole time wow. and managed a restaurant at one point. But So after Javon was born and we were trying to get him medical help and really driving to Massachusetts and back for him to work with this particular therapist mm-hmm. that... Marjorie is now trained in and is now teaching that work, body mind centering that shifted how we make art. Yeah. You know, we weren't doing three to five projects every year. We were doing one. Mm -hmm. And not long after that, 2000, 2001 is I, is when I started exploring becoming a teacher because I realized I mean, especially the kind of teaching I was interested at the time was, which is at a Waldorf school. Mm -hmm. So I went to Antioch, New England and Keene, New Hampshire to get a master's to become a Waldorf teacher. And they have this dual program where you can get certified as a Waldorf teacher and also get certified as a, as a public school teacher. And my focus was on arts integration. That was another journey yeah you know another path really and so we moved away from austin and went to grad school um and that was big that was a big change big big move but we we needed to we needed to change things javon needed some help therapists that we liked and that were helpful for him lived on the east coast Mm -hmm. so we lived in williamstown massachusetts which is odd but that was the place where javon could go to a a preschool and kindergarten program and still get some occupational therapy services yeah so we lived in williamstown and i drove to Keene, new hampshire every weekend to take classes because it was a weekend only thing and then marjorie was in a program too that was in Goddard, which was in Vermont, but that was a distance residency program. So we did that for two years. And then I got a job at a Waldorf school in Vermont. So then we moved up to Vermont, just outside of Burlington. And Waldorf schools are, they integrate all of the arts into their curriculum. Mm-hmm. So the teacher, the class teacher is teaching reading and writing and math and science and history and But they're also integrating painting and poetry and theater and sculpting. I did some clay sculpting. And so all of that is being integrated into the curriculum, too. Hmm. It was a lot. It was a lot to take on. And it it was, uh, as a class teacher, you stay ideally with the same group of kids from first grade through eighth grade. Oh, wow. I went from first grade through fifth grade because it it got to be pretty intense, There was some conflict with a parent that was trying to sort of take me down at one point. And then other parents rallied around this parent to try to have me removed. And it was a a mess. Mm. I would say through that and through the exhaustion of kind of being in a small school 
with not a lot of support, mm -hmm. I, I was really missing Austin and the community here. And I was doing theater. I set up some theater clubs, some middle school theater clubs and high school theater clubs. And I directed a bunch of plays for kids wow. while I was in Vermont. Yeah. And I didn't act that much. I only did one. We, we did one production of Waiting for Godot, which was a blast. But yeah, I didn't perform very much. And I was really missing that. So in 2010, we came back to Austin. And um, I got a job teaching at a public charter school for four years, the Discovery School. Mm -hmm. And then I taught at another school, the Integrity Academy, which is over by Casa de Luz. And then since, and then I did that for a year. And then since then, I've started my own business as a tutor, private tutor. Yeah. And the whole time I've been back, since I've been back, I kind of dove right back into the theater and dance community too. Yeah. Mostly with Fusebox and with Capital T. And I've been making my own work. I started to get some funding from the city to do my own projects. And then also with Eloise Gold, dancer yeah. Eloise, she and I have been working together for the past four years too. So yeah, I, I have my hands in a lot of different pots right now. It's been great working with Capital T. I've I've kind of jumped back into this doing new plays and that's been great. Uh, Frontera did that. Hyde Park Theater has always sort of maintained that status of doing new, sh new shows. Mm -hmm. um, Ken Webster certainly does an amazing job with that. And Mark Pakel, who's the artistic director of Capital T, has taken that on too. Yeah, we've done six, seven shows together. And I directed my first show last year, which nice. was awesome. The Brother's Size by Terrell Alvin McCraney. So, yeah, it's been pretty wild. <laughs> um, so there's a quote on your website uh, that I really like. Empowering people to make their own work and talk about issues that affect them. What does that mean to you? Yeah, well, so... About four years ago, I made this piece called Feast of My Heart. And the idea came, the idea really came from thinking about all of the negative, potentially disastrous decisions that men have made in the world mm. that have affected, that have affected huge groups of people. Yeah. Mostly men, whether it's political, entertainment wise, sports wise. So I started to think about what does it mean to be a person in the world and do things with compassion? Mm -hmm. So I asked eight different playwrights, eight different directors, and eight different visual artists this question of what does it mean to engage in an act of compassion? I gave them a framework for the writers. I said, can you write a piece for me? And I chose writers that I'd all worked with before. I said, can you write a piece for me, a solo piece that's eight to 18 minutes long? Eight was a huge number for this piece. Okay. Can you write a piece, you know, eight to 18 minutes long that is a response to that question? What does it mean to engage in an act of compassion? So I asked eight visual artists the same question. I actually gave them the text from the plays. I gave them to the visual artists and mm. that they made a piece in response to that piece of writing. So, I mean, I got eight amazing pieces. Mm. Very different, each one of them. 
One of them was a film. One of them was a straight-up monologue. Uh, one of them was um, kind of a score for a dance piece. Uh, one of them was a pure dance piece. And then I had all the artwork. I did this at the old Salvage Vanguard Theater, and I had all the artwork in the gallery on display too. One of the experiences I had while I was doing that is one day I put on a GoPro camera. I strapped it to my chest and I walked around downtown and I was just picking up trash. That was one of the... Kirk Lynn from the Rudmex gave me this score. He's like, leave your house, take a plastic bag with you, pick up trash on the way until someone talks to you and interacts with you and then turn around and go home. That was that was the okay. that was his score for his response to that question. Yeah. So I chose and my friend Vicky Boone was mm-hmm. the director who I chose to work with on this. Instead of leaving my house, we just went downtown and I walked around. So I was picking up trash, filming everything. This man, homeless guy, comes up to me and asks me what I was doing. I said I'm picking up trash. He starts coming along with me. He actually starts picking up trash, putting it in the bag. He takes my bag from me. He's like, yeah, come on. We got to pick up all this trash. Pick it up. And like puts <laughs> it in the bag. I was like, and then finally we're walking and he ties it all up and puts it in the dumpster. And he's like, all right, we're done. And then he walks off. And I was like, oh my God, that was amazing. You know? <laughs> so then I walk, he walks off and I, I walk after him and I'm filming the whole thing. And I'm like, Hey, what's your name? You know, he's like, my name's Willie. It was a little hard for me to understand him. He had a speech issue and he looks at me and he says, all I really want to do is learn how to read. Oh, wow. And I was like, wow. Okay. I'm a teacher. Yeah. I can teach you to read. Yeah. You know, and so we start walking. He tells me his name. He tells me a bit of his life story. He's been on the street for a long time. And I tell him that I'm a teacher and that I will bring some books and I will start teaching him to read. So we made this agreement to meet the next day at this location. We're at downtown. And I went and I met him. We met a couple more times and I downtown and I brought some books and we met at the library and it was, I mean, he was, he's probably in his sixties and the guy really didn't know sounds, didn't know letter sounds. And we were trying to read the newspaper. And so he stopped coming to meet me. Hmm. So, and I couldn't reach him. There was no way to reach him. Yeah. Um, he did call me. I gave him my phone number. He called me two more times and I wasn't, and so he left me messages and I wasn't able to connect with him. So unfortunately I lost touch with him. I tried to track him down. I even, I had somebody who was working at Arch who knew him, but unfortunately this guy could not give me any personal information about him. Oh yeah. All he could tell me was Willie's doing fine. Oh wow. <laughs> you know, okay. so so that experience had a pretty big effect on me. And I would say since that time, I have really thought about how can I continue to make work, theater, dance, artwork, 
that is connected to where I live hmm. and the issues that are that Austin is dealing with. I mean, there's tons of issues in this city that are going on. And I would say that one thing that is pretty close to my heart and means a lot to me is to nurture black artists and mm-hmm. black theater artists and dancers in Austin because I feel like their work is very powerful, has always made a huge impact in my life. I mean, since Frontera days where a lot of artists from New York and Minneapolis and from the black theater and dance community would come to Austin and make work. And we commissioned a lot of folks. Um, I have always been inspired by them for whatever reason, you know, they speak like hip hop, jazz, um, all that music, that music speaks to me. The poetry of a lot of black poets and black writers has always been very inspirational to me. And so that's been something that has, I've found like has been a, a part of my journey is how do I, as a white man, nurture the work of black artists? Mm-hmm. So that's taken a couple different, you know, I've, I've worked on a couple of fuse box projects. The other project that, that I did after feast that I got some city funding for was um, called the father son project. Mm-hmm. And that I partnered up with Zell Miller, who's an amazing performer and hip hop poet, and Dashade, who is also a performer and hip hop poet and a and a fight choreographer. The three of us were the main collaborators to look at our relationships with our sons mm-hmm. and also to look at our relationships with our fathers and what we passed down for better or for worse onto our sons. So we met at LifeWorks. We partnered with LifeWorks over on uh, on the east side to to meet every month, once a month, to just have a conversation with mm-hmm. a group of men who are all dads. Sometimes they brought their sons, and we would just talk about, you know, what did you learn from your dad, or what did you, what was your experience like growing up, or, and man, I mean, it's amazing how many men don't talk about their relationships with their dads <laughs> or don't talk about their feelings or well, <laughs> emotions. Yeah. They don't talk about their feelings at all. True. Yeah. Especially and with other men. Yeah. With other men. And then when you start putting the connection together of what do I want to pass on to my son? I mean, that's another really big area that is, does not get talked about very much. Yeah. So we did a workshop and then did a performance of that three years ago. And it was awesome. The feedback we got was very similar. Like, oh my gosh, you you guys are talking to each other. We want more of this. How can we get more men involved? And so we did the project again the next year. And we pulled in other fathers. These were artists. We tried to get other people but it was it started become became sort of a scheduling issue. Yeah. But the conversations were still really really deep and were incredibly meaningful about what you get from your father and that you consciously or unconsciously take on and pass on to to your sons. What did you learn about yourself? 
about your father, about you well, being a father, if you want to share. Yeah, I mean, my dad, so we had a pretty tight relationship, I would say up until like 12. We did a lot of sports together. He was my coach for baseball, for basketball, soccer. And then around 12, sixth grade, he started traveling a bunch. He was an over-the-counter drug salesman, and he traveled a bunch. And I started to get more and more interested in school and the social aspects of school. And that kind of bond that we had kind of went away. And it kept getting farther and farther away through junior high and through high school. And it really didn't come back until college. Like when I moved away, Mm -hmm. then we would have more meaningful letters or phone conversations or whenever I would go home to visit, we would have much more meaningful visits together and great talks. But I would say, and my dad had a pretty complicated upbringing. Mm -hmm. Like he, his dad was alcoholic and wasn't really in his family, in his life for more. He was raised in kind of a foster home for most of his life. And Mm -hmm. then he went to the army and then he got married. Yeah. So, I would say most of what I feel like I've learned from him, I mean, he's an open person. He's pretty open about and curious about the world, but he definitely kind of tuned out, I feel like. And I am not that way. (laughs) I'm kind of the opposite, (laughs) maybe to a fault. You know what I mean? Like I, and partly it has to do with the fact that Javon has had some serious health issues. Yeah that my stress and anxiety level and concern has been amped up. So I am kind of like in his life a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, he's 18 now and, uh, and I'm still pretty much there all the time, which I love. I mean, I totally, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, you know, my, my parents, I would say they were supportive of me to a degree as an artist, but like I said, they haven't seen a lot of my work. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have conversations about theater, really, dance or art. And Marjorie and I, both being artists, have tried to encourage Javon in those worlds, but he's not interested. You know, he makes a lot of music, but sharing that music and being public and being out in the open is terrifying for him. So that has been interesting as we try to encourage this artistic side of him that he, he just, he just really wants to find it on his own yeah, in his own time. And I think because I didn't get any encouragement, I want to, you know, <laughs> encourage <laughs> him more. And, and it's, uh, it's tricky. Yeah. I, I've had to back off, you know, just really like, okay, he's going to find it on his own. Yeah. Um, but I've used his music in both of the father son projects I use his music as the sound design for it. And mm-hmm. yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah. He doesn't like it though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking back to some things you already said and you did that workshop that really opened up things for you. But, mm-hmm. and I, I'm sure people that have listened to this podcast a lot probably get a, have an idea of where my head is a lot of the times, but I do, when I was on my way here, I was thinking about like the fear that I have of being in public or performing, you know, being judged, being rejected, 
feeling embarrassed, feeling shame. Like, I don't know. How do you get over that? Mm. <laughs> you know, I just, I feel like that has kept me from doing a lot of things in my life. Yeah. Well, so one of the ways I feel like as I get older and have had more and more experiences both on stage and also in the classroom and in front of groups of people, a few things that I that I think about as far as like overcoming that anxiety about being in front of people is that people like hearing stories. And when you are real and authentic with people, usually they listen. Mm-hmm. And if you can change the perception, you know, in your head, in your mind about that people are here or people are going to judge you, I'd like to flip it and say what I have to offer or to talk to people is very valuable. And they're going to relate to what I have to say or not, but that's okay. Like what I have to say is important. My story is important. How I say it is who I am. And if people are judging me, that's more about them than it is about what I'm bringing to them. I, I think a lot of people who are having trouble performing, like it's hard for them to accept that they can be real, you know, on stage or in front of a group of people. And not just be a character. And not be a character, hide behind something, hide behind mannerisms or a way of talking that maybe they get certain responses from. I mean, I think, you know, comedians talk about this all the time. Like they go out and they, they sort of turn on, right? And they do this thing for an hour or 30 minutes or whatever. But then when they're off stage, I mean, a lot of comedians are pretty depressed. Yeah. Because when they're not getting that kind of feedback, they don't know who they are. And That's a whole other thing, needing validation yeah, or feedback. Right, 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 right. But I... I mean, I kind of like to think of it as when I'm going on stage or when I'm going in front of a group of people, they're going to relate to me. You know, what I have to say, they want to hear. If they're paying money, you know, they want to hear it. They, they're there. They're curious about what I have to say. So really the big thing, like it's funny, this group of people that I've been mentoring for the city training they're doing pitches tomorrow night for $500 and they have five minutes and they're all terrified. They're mostly visual artists. You know, what I tell them is like, look, everybody wants you to be successful. Like people want to listen to you. You know, people love to hear stories. They love to see people interact. So if you can flip it to say like what I have is valuable and I'm going to be my true self up here. You, you don't really have anything to lose. I mean, you can make mistakes and and it can feel terrifying. But the truth is, is like you're a human being. You're going to get nervous in front of other human beings. But most of those people in the audience are are with you. Yeah. You know? And so what I do with people through this active voice work is to try to get them to think about, okay, what does my voice sound like? 
And when I'm in a particular situation, what happens to my voice? Do I get nervous and quiet or, you know, do I get really loud because I really want them to hear me? And those kind of modulations or awarenesses can help you in a variety of situations, like figure out like if you're doing a talk for hundreds of people, you know, you, you have to be bigger. You have, you have to sort of turn it on more versus you're having a one-on-one conversation or you're trying to, you know, I've, I've been working interestingly enough with a group, a bunch of real estate professionals. Hmm. A lot of their interactions are in one or, you know, very small interactions. So, I've been helping them to kind of understand like, okay, you're giving information, but you're also receiving a lot of information too. People are kind of telling you their life story and you're trying to help them find a house. You know, how can you make them feel comfortable and still sell a house without it being too heavy handed? So the workshop is really about listening to yourself, listening to other people, what are the qualities of your voice that you have that are your strengths, and what do you do that is is hard to listen to, you know, what is a challenge for you vocally. And you know, a lot of people don't play with their voices very much, and that's partly what we do. We just <laughs> yeah. spend a lot of time making noises, playing around with different phrases, we play around with colors. We use colors a lot oh. to identify, you know, because color is, for a lot of people, you can connect an emotion to it and it's visual. So if you try to find a blue quality to your voice or a yellow quality to your voice, that also gives it some energy. Mm-hmm. Speaking of play, I feel like that's something I've realized that is missing in adults' lives a lot. I think a lot of adults do not do any kind of play. Yeah. And I feel like it's so healthy and necessary. How do you incorporate play into your life daily? Well... Or do you all, do you agree with that? Yeah. I totally agree with you. And I don't think I play enough. I think one thing, a big thing that I did get from my parents is like this practical side of yeah. myself... And I can get pretty bogged down in that. That surprises me because I think of you as being so uninhibited in a way. Yeah, but I mean, there's definitely, I can be a control freak about things. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, we all can. Yes, totally. I I would say most of my play comes from rehearsing. Yeah. And when I'm with a student, you know, now I work one-on-one with students and we we play. I mean, so in our hour together, I would say a good 15 minutes of that is just like playing around and interacting with each other and engaging each other that way. But for like pure play for myself, I, I don't feel like I do it enough. Yeah. You know, I mean, rehearsing a play, rehearsing a dance piece, uh, those are all great things. But they're also ultimately working towards some kind of project, right? Yeah. So just f- kind of free, uninhibited play for no reason. Yeah, I haven't done that in a while. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, on a daily basis, try to live a creative and or compassionate life? I'm constantly thinking of projects to be involved with or to create that are 
essentially that are that's about maybe a new play or a new dance piece or a piece of music and i feel like my community of of peers like i get a lot of inspiration from them certainly in austin but also around the world so for me reaching out to those people seeing what they're doing and then connecting it to like what am i what am i passionate about in my life right now you know for me right now education is really important um like social justice is very important to me so finding either plays or other artists that i connect with that have similar interests finding them and having a conversation and talking about like what do we what do we want to do here what's the collab for me collaboration is huge mm. and I, I can't work in a vacuum like it just doesn't work very well for me yeah i get a lot of energy from people so i mean that's one thing that i talk to people a lot about is like who are the people in your life that inspire you that support you that you can connect with on a regular basis yeah. to kind of keep that creative spirit going. And that's going to inspire you to explore things that you maybe never have. Mm -hmm. That's really what I do. I feel like on a daily basis, whether it's conscious or unconscious, like hearing a piece of music, um, you know, finding a play that is getting, a lot of interest. There's a, so many interesting plays right now that are connecting the political landscape with the personal right now. It's mm -hmm. pretty amazing. So, and I often, you know, I tutor reading, writing, and math with school kids, but I often try to get them to think creatively about how to solve problems. Math or, you know, what's your writing? What do you, I, I always try to, support and encourage them to be their best creative selves. Yeah. I mean, in, on your website, you had kind of the standard things listed, but then you also had focus, comprehension and expression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. The, the, the kids that come to me, their parents will say, yeah, they have ADD or ADHD and they've been diagnosed with this or that. And I don't know, it's different. They come to me, we, we have a one-on-one -on -one exchange and, they can be themselves, you know? And I guess I guess that's a big thing that I, I like to encourage in people all people, young or old, is like, you know, if you have something that's that lights your fire, that really inspires you, find a way to do it and be surround yourself with people who are doing it also, so that you're not alone in a vacuum and you can actually get the support that you need, both mental, emotional, um, financial to be able to do it and i do love i have to say i i do love that about austin there's a lot of changes that are happening here that are that are trying to push the artists out but there are also a lot of resources that i feel like support artists in austin and there are an amazing amount of creative people here yeah i, I feel like this whole issue around space and and affordability, I, I think it's going to work out. I don't know. Yeah. I just feel like there's a lot of creative people here working on situations that are not, quote, normal or outside the box. And 
I think some cool stuff is going to happen here. Are there any resources you'd like to mention that people might look into? The city, actually, the Cultural Arts Division has a lot of programs that I feel like are underutilized by people. That I'm planning to interview someone from there. So yeah. I want a breakdown of everything. Definitely. <laughs> there are so, there's a lot of... Because most of the money that comes for arts funding comes from the tourism and the hotel bed tax. Yeah. That... And because Austin is so popular, there's there's quite a bit of money to give to arts groups. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the city of Austin, and there's also Austin Creative Alliance, I think is a good resource. Fusebox is an amazing resource. There's also the small business division of the city has f- a lot of free programs right. for people. A lot of practical business side of yeah. art yep. classes and yep. things like that. Yeah, there's a lot of resources out there, for sure. So what do you have going on the rest of this year that people might make note of and try to connect with you? So right now I'm rehearsing a play that with capital T, which is called Small Mouth Sounds, which is going to open uh, May 17th and run through June 16th at Hyde Park Theater. I'm also directing my friend Eloise Gold in a dance theater piece, that's going to be in June at the Ground Floor Theater. I think it's that June 13th, that weekend. Mm-hmm. I'm also working on a musical for kids mm. uh, called Gretel, which with a company called Theater Heroes. And um, we're going to be performing it at the Paramount in January, which is awesome. Wow. It's, it's really a really fun venue. musical. Marjorie and I are also working on a dance theater piece mm. that will be at Ground Floor Theater in September. Wow. That's looking at immigration and stories of people coming from different places and kind of reforming a different kind of family. Mm. And it'll be dance theater based, hopefully some film stuff in there too. We're collaborating with a woman from Texas State who's a dance film maker. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's a lot. It's a lot. And then also this active voice workshop and tutoring and parenting and creating a podcast and yeah. all kinds of stuff. Right. So what is yeah. your website? Is that the best place for yeah. people? To- Jason Phelps creates is mostly where the workshop and current theater projects are listed. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Jason, for your time. Thank you. This has been awesome. I really appreciate it. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and colleagues and consider giving it a review on iTunes. That could help others find it and motivate them to give it a try. At austinarttalk.com, you can visit each episode's webpage to find links related to the relevant and interesting people, places, and things mentioned by each guest. And thanks to those who have reached out with encouragement and positive feedback. I really appreciate it. All the best to you and take care.